You stay the same through the ages. Your love never. All right, let me have your uh, have your attention up here. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look into God's word this morning. So if you'd uh, pray with me. God, we acknowledge, as we often do here at Exodus, we acknowledge that the invisible world is real. It's just as real as what we see and feel. And somewhere in this invisible world that we currently are sitting in and standing in right now, um, your spirit is working and active. You're active in us, around us, and um, you've given us the capacity to respond to what your spirit says to us. And so as we look into your word, which uh, your Holy Spirit gave to us, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you want us to hear, what you want us to see, and give us the mercy and grace and courage to respond in the ways you ask us to. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Right, if you're like me, you have all these general curiosities about things. So uh, today we have an Easter quiz. And I'm just going to ask you to so see how many you can get it right on this one. So um, first question this year, 90 million of these will be produced for the Easter season. Is it A, marshmallow peeps, B, plastic Easter eggs, C, chocolate bunnies, D, Easter greeting cards, or E, Reese's peanut butter eggs? Just shout out your answer. All right, the correct answer, I believe, is C, it's chocolate bunnies, 90 million of them this year. All right. Next question. In the 18th century, German immigrants, which were also called the Pennsylvania Dutch, actually, a little side note here, Pennsylvania Dutch were actually the Pennsylvania Deutsch. Deutsch is a German word for German, so they're not Dutch, they're German. Get that straight, okay. <laughs> Pennsylvania Dutch brought which Easter tradition to America? A, did they bring jelly beans? B, the Easter bunny? C, Easter eggs? Or D, Easter baskets? If you guessed B, you guessed correctly. They actually came over, they would actually, this was kind of a funny thing when you think about it, they actually put out nests for the Easter bunny to come lay eggs. Now, do Easter bun do bunnies lay eggs? No. Figure that one out. Maybe there was a German part of them. I don't know. Question three. Each year, the date of Easter Sunday falls on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the blank, A, is it A, spring forward, is it B, spring solstice, C, spring equinox, or is it after the first round of the NCAA basketball tournament? All right, we, wish, we, we probably think it's D, but actually the correct answer, I believe, is C, the spring equinox, which I finally figured this out what it was when I was looking on the internet. It's the, I don't know what it means solarly and lunarly, but it's basically when the daytime and the nighttime are about the same, so 12 hours of each light and darkness, so, which usually is about March 20th, sometimes March 21st, all right? When and who and when decided when Easter would be each year? Who decided that little formula, all right? Was it A, Abraham Lincoln in 1862? Was it B, the U.S. Congress in 1931? Was it Pope Leo X in 1520? Was it the Council of Nicaea in 325? Or was it the NCA Selection Committee in 1972? Who decided this formula we have for Easter? If you guessed D, the Council of Nicaea, you guessed correctly, all right? Council of Nicaea. Here's, it was interesting, though. They, initially, Easter was always celebrated as two days after Passover because Jesus rose two days after the Jewish Passover feast. Well, the Jewish Passover feast is kind of a ro roaming holiday based on some other lunar issues. And so what was happening was Easter didn't always fall on Sundays. 
And so the early church kind of thought, well, wait, Easter ought to fall on Sunday because that was the rest resurrection day. So their decision was, let's make it a steady Sunday around this time of year every year. All right, so that's why up until that point, there would have been Easter Wednesday, Easter Tuesday, Easter Saturday. And I think some people would have felt like that was felt kind of weird, off. All right, the Eastern Orthodox Church. So if you know anybody that's Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and there's an Orthodox church in Bloomington, it's on the south side of town. They will celebrate Easter this year on which date? A, today, B, April 31, C, May 5th, or D, December 25th? Somebody said that with confidence. May 5th, who said that? Okay, do you know that for a fact? Very good. It's correct. May 5th. Now, you might say, why is that? Uh, in the year 1000 or so, uh, there was conflict as to who was, the, who was leading the church. So you had what's called the Eastern and the Western church split. Eastern church became the Catholic church and eventually Protestant church. The Western church became Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and uh, things like that. And so they, have, they just adapted a different formula. There's no, I mean, Easter didn't happen on March 30th when Jesus was rose from the dead. So they just came up with a different formula, a different uh, pattern to remember Easter Sunday. So they will do May 5th. All right, question seven. According to a recent Lifeway research, this was done like this month, what percentage of Americans are not planning to attend church Easter Sunday? What, what percentage said in the last month, I'm not planning to go to church on Easter this year? Was it A, 19%, B, 29%, C, 39%, or D, 49%? Correct answer is B, 29%. So almost one out of three people you might know weren't even planning to come to church today. Not making that as a judgment statement, just an interesting observation. All right, next one. According to the same polling data, what percentage of Americans were unsure whether, they not, whether or not they would attend Easter Sunday services this year? And some of you may be here this morning. We don't have, we're not asking you to write your hand, raise your hand or anything, but how many were unsure? 10%, 20%, 30 or 40? I believe the correct answer on this one was 20%. So again, some of you may have been a part of that 20%. You weren't sure maybe till last week or maybe till last night or maybe till the alarm went off this morning. So that leaves, I think, 40% that were planning to come. But here's the big question for the day is, so why did you come this morning? I mean, I'm not going to fill in the answers because I didn't have any because there's as many answers maybe as there are people. Some of you maybe came because, well, that's what I do. I go to church on Sundays. Maybe it's habit. Maybe it's a good habit. Maybe it's a habit that comes out of a sense of duty and obligation. If you really wrestle with why do you come, you're not sure you could give a good answer. Maybe you're forced to come. Maybe you're a kid, or maybe you're somebody, maybe your parents, or somebody is kind of guilting you into coming. Many of us come because we, we, we think, we hope at least, that somehow we're going to connect with God. We want something. We, and it's not just we need enough to make it the next seven days. We think there might be something for heaven's sake, at least on Easter Sunday, something we can find or have, hear, listen to, respond to that might help us live a life that's more full. But some of us may have come out of guilt, obligation. I mean, Dan and I came because we get paid to be here. <laughs> I mean, not really. I mean, I think we'd come anyway. I mean, we do get paid, but we come otherwise than that, all right? But we, we all come for different reasons. But I think at the bottom of the whole, all the reasons, and at, at the base of it all, we're coming for some reason, ultimately because God got us here. 
You may have this reason as to why you came, but there's, God wants you here. So that's why you're here. But what are we hoping for when we go to church? What are we hoping for when we go to Easter? I mean, if you're like me, you go to, you know, you've had, I've had, this is what, my 50th, 51st Easter Sunday. And you have all these expectations. It's kind of like Christmas, all these expectations of what it's going to be. And, you're, and you, you think you're supposed to feel something like large and big and wow. But you don't always feel that. So then you're trying to figure out, is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with this? Or is that just the way it's supposed to be and maybe, I don't ex- maybe I'm expecting too much? You know, we read at the beginning of the service, now we live with great expectation. Maybe that's a problem. Maybe we need to lower the expectation. Maybe God doesn't do what we... So we have all these kind of questions. What we've been doing the last number of weeks, maybe months by now I could say that, then this series called Imagine You Alive, Awake, and Free. And it's from the Gospel of Luke. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke, actually going around the Gospel of Luke. And the passage we've kind of focused it all on is Luke chapter 4, go to the next slide, where Jesus kind of states his, actually this is just a redo of Alive, Awake, and Free. Jesus states his mission statement as to why he came to earth. And this will also give a larger context of what Easter is all about. Because Jesus said this in his hometown, in front of people who didn't quite understand what he meant, but this is kind of his mission statement, if he was a corporation. So actually, we do this every week, too. Read this out loud with me. Here we go. This is Jesus stating what he came for. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So freedom, release, recovery, favor. He came for you and me so those words would be descriptive of our stories. Released, free, recovered, favor, alive. That's what he came for. He did not come to turn you into a moral person. He did not come to turn you into a nice person. He did not come to turn you into a religious person. He did not come to make you liberal or conservative, Republican or Democrat. Jesus came for you and me to be free, alive, awake. Alive, awake, and free. That's what he came for. His mission is you. His mission is not like some conceptual thing. It's people like you. His mission was to set you free. His mission was to make you alive and awake. And again, how we've defined that in the last number of months is, you know, alive is this sense of there's an awareness and aliveness to what God's doing around. There's a, a, a sense of energy, not like hyperactivity, but there's an energy that comes from life of God being in us. Awake, being aware and awake and listening to what God's saying and doing around us and being a part of that. Free is that there's no obstacle, no slavish habits, no secret habits, no subtle unknown habits that are keeping us from really being the kind of woman or man that we all know we want to be. So Jesus came so we could be those kind of people. The problem is, my problem is, your problem is, we've often lessened our expectation because we just can't quite see that happening. So we're, we're settling for alive-ish, awake-ish, and free-ish, but not really alive, awake, and free. Now, go to the next slide. Today we're going to look at this, Luke chapter 24. Everybody should have one of these things on your chair, uh, cardstock. Because uh, we're going to look at one. We're going to look at the day of the resurrection, 
And I want again realize that the the objective today is what does it mean to live live awake and free, and how does Jesus a part of that? Let me give you a little turn on the side that says Luke twenty four. Let me give you just a real quick background. Okay, of course, up to this point, uh, Jesus had been arrested, betrayed, tortured, brutalized, uh, died. The disciples, most of them, ran away and hid. They were afraid. Because this wasn't how they thought it was supposed to end. It wasn't at all. Even though Jesus had tried to tell them, kind of like you and me, we, we don't really hear what Jesus, God's saying the first time. So it's Sunday morning, and Mary and some others, a handful of women, we don't know who they all, all of them were, we know some of their names, Mary and Joanna and some others, went to the tomb to put spices on Jesus' body. It was a Jewish custom. They get there, and the tomb's empty. The, the stones rolled away. Um, and they don't know what to do. The angel, there's an angel, a, a man, in this case, was a, a, tells them, hey, Jesus is not here. He rose from the dead, just like he told you what. And says, Mary and the women ran back. <laughs> this, is, if, if, this would be funny if it wasn't kind of typical of males. Okay, I'm knocking myself here. Comes back and they tell the men what happened, and the men tell, oh, that's nonsense. You know, you women, it's nonsense. That's just it. The Bible says they said, oh, that just sounds like nonsense to them. But Peter, if you remember, Peter, even though he probably thought it was nonsense, Peter takes off at the back door and dashes to the tomb to see what really is going on, and it is empty. All right? So there's a little bit of a buzz already among the followers of Jesus because, okay, we saw what happened, and we're kind of dejected and really kind of discouraged, but now these women said they saw the empty tomb and an angel. Yeah, right, angel, sure, Mary. You've had a hard weekend. Go back to bed and let's talk about it tomorrow and figure out how we're going to deal with this. An angel told them Jesus was... So there's a little bit of buzz, like they don't know what to make of all this now. They know the tomb's empty, or at least they, Mary told them it was, and the other women told them it was. They don't know why yet, all right? So that's kind of the mood of the moment right there, all right? Here's what we pick up. Why don't you just follow along with me, all right? That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. We know one of the guys, one of the two people was a, a man named Cleopas, who was not one of the original disciples. He was a disciple of Jesus. He wasn't one of the 12, or this time 11. We don't know who the other person was. Some people think it was his wife. Some people just another guy. We don't know. All right. So if you follow me for a second, they're in Jerusalem, which is here, and they're walking seven miles away to Emmaus, which I'll say is over there. All right. Average walking speed of a male is about three and a half miles an hour. It's about a two-plus-hour walk, all right? So these two people, Cleopas, they're leaving Jerusalem, probably were there for the Passover, were there for all the events of Jesus, and they're walking back home to Emmaus, all right? As they walked along, I'm in verse 14 now, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. All right. Most of you have a red pen or some pen on your chair. Underline that phrase. But God kept them from recognizing them. Because we're trying to figure out what's going on here. All right. God kept them from recognizing So we don't know if Jesus had something on his face, if he had glasses. They didn't have glasses. Then, but we don't know what it was. But somehow they didn't, know, they didn't recognize him. They had been around him enough. They weren't one of the intimate 12. They had been around him enough they would have known him otherwise. All right. And so Jesus asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? Because these two people were talking about what was going on and what was happening and what to do. 
And they stop short. They're like, they stop and they're like sadness written across their faces. They were devastated. And then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here in the last few days. And Jesus says, what things? Underline that. Like, what's up with that? Is Jesus just being bizarre here? Is he playing with these guys? Is this some kind of obscure lesson that's going on here? What things? I mean, these are Jesus' things. He should know of anybody what things they're talking about. What things, Jesus asked. Well, the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. Of course, they're walking along all this time. They're getting closer to Emmaus. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. And this all happened three days ago. Now stop for a second here, too. As they're walking along and telling Jesus this, after Jesus had just said what things, imagine to yourself, what was Jesus' mood right now? What might Jesus have been feeling? Was he kind of being playful but joyful? Was he joyful? Was he just like, you know, I can't believe what they're... Or was he just stoic and playing his part well, reading his lines well? Or was he being really human at this point and quite joyful and there's something else going on? Then some women from our group of followers were at his tomb early this morning and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing. They had seen angels that told them Jesus was alive. Some of our men ran out to see and sure enough, his body was gone, just the woman had said. Okay, so maybe they were like, we don't know when Jesus joined them on the journey, but say they're halfway to Emmaus by now. All right. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people. And, and it's not a, it wasn't a condescending term. He wasn't saying, you stupid idiots. He was just saying, you don't get it. You missed something here. You find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus, so they're getting close. Walked along this time, they're getting close. And into the journey, Jesus acted as if he were going on. Underline that, he acted as if he were going on. Like, hey, good talking to you guys. Sorry for your bad day. I'll see you later. I mean, what was he doing? Acting? He's acting as if he's going on. But they begged him. They begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bed and blessed it, and then he broke and gave it to them. Or, hey, stop right there for a second. Why, back here in Jerusalem, why didn't Jesus just tell them, I mean, these guys are sad, written on their faces. They're despondent. Their hope's been dashed. Way worse than Syracuse beating IU. No, I'm just saying, you know what that feeling's like when that game was over? Take that and multiply it like to the nth degree. It was that feeling. We had these hopes and they were dashed. I'm not trying to equate IU basketball to religion, but you know what I'm saying? I think sometimes those things are a pointer to larger issues in our soul. Their hopes were dashed. Why didn't Jesus just say, hey, it's me? 
Don't be sad anymore. Let me tell you what, let me tell you what really happened, how it happened. Why not here? Or at least halfway to Emmaus, why not all of a sudden when he sits down and eats dinner with them and he breaks the bread and they have this awareness, oh, this was Jesus. Why did he wait till then? Why didn't he tell them that there? And my guess is there are some of you right now that have issues going on in your life, sadness issues, pain, whatever, and you're trying to figure out why doesn't Jesus just tell me what's going on and how this is ending? Why is he letting me walk through sadness, dashed hopes? Why is he doing that? What's wrong with him? Right? I mean, can, can any of you relate to that? Why doesn't, why did he wait till there? Here's what I think. Here's what I'm saying from this passage. Go to the next slide. Your heart matters to Jesus. You know what he's doing this whole time? He's drawing out their heart. Well, we had hoped this. They're sad. We hoped this. We'd... He's letting them kind of, he's drawing out the hopes of their heart, the deepest part of who they were. He's drawing out their dreams, their hopes, what they were hoping for. Well, you might say, well, shouldn't Jesus have already known that? Yes, he already knew that, but there's something good for us when we express those to Jesus because Jesus knows our heart matters. Jesus could have said, ta-da, it's me, and, and, and then maybe they wouldn't have been honest totally or with understand what our hopes were, our hopes were. We're hoping for this. And, and they, they talk about their hopes. They talk about what they, they thought was going to happen. They talk about their sadness. And Jesus lets them talk. I mean, is it okay to tell Jesus what you're sad about, what your hopes are when they get dashed? Some of you have stories right now that have some pretty hope-dashing things in the last couple months of your life. And you might, oh, you know, I know I'm supposed to be, all things work together for good, so I should be happy. I don't want to complain to Jesus. No, these guys aren't complaining. They're expressing kind of the deepest parts of their heart, the parts where we begin to live alive, awake, and free. The only way to get there is to kind of live out of that part of who you are and quit trying to pretend you're better than you are, quit trying to play the game of religion, quit trying to be the Christian you think other people want you to be, be the kind of person that Jesus wants you to be, and be honest and have a conversation with him. I love this part of Jesus. I love this part of Jesus. It's okay to tell Jesus when you're kind of disappointed, Jesus. I'm not really sure. All right. And you'll notice this flip of the paper now. Suddenly their eyes were open. This is verse 31. They recognized him, and at that moment he disappeared. Okay, what's up with that? He disappeared, but they recognized him, and they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked on the road and explained the scriptures to us? Notice they didn't say, weren't our, didn't our, wasn't our intellects quite enticed and stimulated while he talked to us? They're just like, no. Something in this part of them was like, wow, he's, he's saying things that's kind of set. Wow, our hearts were burning inside of us. I'm clicking. You may hear that click? Yeah, sounds like a metronome for a piano. All right, here we go. So he, he, their heart, he says their hearts were burning. 
when we talked to him. Maybe their hearts wouldn't have been burning if Jesus wouldn't give them a chance to talk about it. And maybe that was his goal. He wanted that passion of their hearts and their hopes to come out. All right? Now, let's finish the story. Within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. Okay? So, again, it may have been dark by now on that Sunday. They decided to go back. Two more hours walk. They probably walked quite quickly, so maybe it was an hour and a half. Maybe they kind of jogged back. I would assume they'd be kind of like, whoa, whoa, we got to tell everybody this. They were fa- there they found the 11 disciples and the others that gathered with them who said, the Lord has really arisen. He's appeared to Peter. Because by then he'd already had appeared to Peter. So they're telling Cle- you know, Cleopas and his friend, his wife or whoever it was. They're, they're like, hey, Cleopas, the Lord's risen. They appeared to Peter. And they're like, we know, we know, we know, we know. All right. So kind of get in the moment here, and then it says this. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, now again, stop right there. Again, the disciples might have been like, wait a minute, you walked for two hours with with Jesus and you didn't know it was him? Okay. And he, he did what? He disappeared? Okay. Can you see the reality of what faith and doubt are going to be hitting it up each other in this one? Just as he was telling them this, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. I mean, the tension of the moment, Jesus shows up and he's like, hey, peace be with you. I mean, he wasn't like, ta-da! It's like, peace be with you. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. So you're in that room. What's, again, we know the end of the story. Don't read the Bible in a fast-forward kind of way, flash-forward kind of way. At the moment, they were scared to death because they didn't know what this was. They thought it was a ghost. They thought it was some kind of spiritual apparition, something. And Jesus says, and again, Imagine the mood of Jesus right now. I don't know exactly what it was. I'm just, it's fun to imagine that, isn't it? Imagine what he was. He wasn't just reading a script. He was being real. All right. And he says, why are, you, why are you frightened? He asked them. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost. Because ghosts don't have bodies, as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. And again, you kind of get the sense they're still all standing back a little bit. Kind of like, let me see, yeah, I saw that. Did you see his hand? I saw his hand. Yeah. But you don't know what's going on yet, all right? But still they stood there, verse 41, in disbelief, but filled with joy and wonder. <sighs> I don't know if I believe Because something, they were experiencing something they had no category for. They had no file folder in their experience for that. Somebody coming back from the dead. They had no concept of that. Still they stood in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And this next line, frankly, I think is quite funny. Jesus says, you have anything here to eat? I mean, he opened the fridge and looked in. Hey, got anything here to eat, guys? I mean, they didn't have fridges then, you know what I'm saying. 
You got anything to eat? <laughs> They're probably like, what? Do you, have any, do you have anything here to eat? I'm hungry. And they're still trying to process. I mean, just, again, the joyful playfulness of Jesus here. Heaven here to eat. And you might say, well, he was trying to prove them he was human. Well, yeah, he could have proven them he was human and he was resurrected in other ways. But he can't. And it says they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they washed. Now think about this for a second. Jesus probably just sits down, sigh, he's chewing and they're all staring at him. Looking at each other. He just swallowed I just saw him swallow. Oh, there's crumbs falling down his beard. Hey, they're staring at him while he's eating a piece of fish, right? Then he said, when I was with you before, so when I was with you before, I told you everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalm must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and raised from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name in all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of these things. In other gospels it said, they kind of broke out in joy at this point. Wow. Right. Imagine the story different now for a second. If Jesus would not have asked for a piece of fish to eat. I'm just trying to think for a second. Why was that, why did, was that important for them? Luke's a doctor. Luke was the one who recorded all of this. Attention to detail. Why did he include the line of Jesus saying, do you have anything to eat? All right. Why? Well, how would the story have differed? Okay, think with me for a second. If Jesus wouldn't have asked that, story, uh, that question and he hadn't eaten... They could have all kind of wondered, maybe it was just, really it was a ghost. Or maybe it was this mass hallucination that we all had. Which that, Those are some of the theories people say about what happened. Mass hallucination, ghost, whatever. And they could have walked away not being sure if that kind of resurrection, new life, really happens. So here's what I think happened in this situation. Here's what I, here's what I think that's included. Go to the next slide here. Real change is real. Right? Jesus really was transformed into a new kind of body, and it really happened. He wasn't just a figment of their imagination. It wasn't mass hallucination brought on by deep suffering and trauma. He wasn't a ghost. He was a different kind of new body because he obviously flipped in and out of the room without having to turn a doorknob. Now, why is that important for you and me? Well, how many of you have something in your life, in your own character, something that you hope for to change? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your own inner life. Maybe it's how you relate to your mom and dad, son and daughter, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. Maybe it's how you relate to money. You don't like the fact you stress out about money. Maybe it's like you don't like the fact that you're afraid to tell your spouse certain things because you're afraid they might get mad at you and you don't want to deal with that. And we have these hopes for change. If Jesus wasn't really resurrected from the dead, if he didn't ask for a piece of something to eat, then the hope might just be a wish because I don't know if real change really happens. But if what happened was he ate a piece of fish 
and he really showed that he was a new body. He was new, but still real. Then my wishful thinking becomes biblically hopeful thinking. Huge difference. There are a lot of things in my life, if I just wish for things to happen, typically they aren't going to happen. And we know what wishful thinking feels like. Following Jesus is not a life of wishful thinking. It's a life of biblically hopeful thinking because your marriage can change. Your relationship with your siblings can change. Your relationship with your roommates, people you have a hard time getting along with, that can change. That issue in your life that you don't think will ever go away and you know it's keeping you from being alive, awake, and free, that can change. Don't ever think that Jesus doesn't have the power to do that because God, through Jesus, rose him from the dead and changed his body into a new body. So there's nothing in you that Jesus can't make new, nothing. It's not wishful thinking. It's not. Last thing from this passage is just an encouragement to all of you, myself included. Jesus is a whole lot closer than you think. He's closer than you think. You might think you're having this conversation in your head or these random thoughts that come out of nowhere or whatever. Who's to say that Jesus isn't kind of starting to converse with you? And you're kind of thinking, oh, man, they had no idea it was Jesus when they were walking on the road. They had no idea. Jesus is a whole lot closer than you think he is. He wants to talk to you. He's probably having conversation with you already. And this, you might, that might be a weird meter thing for some people. It's not weird in that sense. But it's a sense of Jesus does, he, he wants to talk to us. He wants to open up our hearts. He wants to help us have the hope for change and, and real resurrection. Not just in that life to come. That is the promise of scripture. But it's in the now too. Jesus came to give us an eternal kind of now life. Not just an eternal kind of then life. So stop wishful thinking and have confidence that he can change those things. And you may think, I don't see any way out of this. That's what they were thinking on the way to Emmaus. I see no way out of this. Now, we'll finish with this one before we do communion this morning. This is the prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesian church. And this is going to be our prayer for one another this morning. That's this. I keep on asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened or that you may know the hope to which he has called you. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm going to pray that you're going to see things you haven't seen before. I'm going to pray that you're going to see Jesus when you haven't seen him. I'm going to pray that your hope changes from wishful thinking and becomes hopeful thinking. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. There's nothing in your life that God can't change because he has the power that that he exerted to raise Christ from the dead. There's no issue in your life that God can't bring hope and healing and redemption to. All right? Do something with me for a second. Take your pen for a second. Put it up in front of your face, and I want you to stare at my fist, all right? I'm going to put the mic down. Put the pen here. Stare at my fist. Make the pen go to the side and 
when it hits your, when it hits your uh, blind spot, your peripheral blind spot, stop it. In other words, a point where you're not gonna see the tip of the pen anymore, right? All right, everybody there? All right, here's our prayer. Our prayer is that God will expand our peripheral vision. And we're gonna see things happening over here. I can't see my pen tip right now. We're gonna see things happening over here that are happening, we just don't see it because all we're looking at is right here, right? So that's my, that's my prayer. That's what I think, that's, I'm paraphrasing Paul's prayer here, is that God would increase that for us. So let's, let me pray, why don't you close your eyes with me and the band can come on up and we'll take communion here in a second. God, my prayer is this, that you would open the eyes of our heart and would you expand our tunnel vision to peripheral vision. We want to see things we haven't seen and there are some here, like me, who have lived uh, 50 years. Some have been Christians for 20 years, 30 years. And we're kind of in a pattern and in a rut of how it works, how we think it works. But God, we want you to break us out of that rut. We want to see things we haven't seen. We want to see you in ways we haven't seen you. And would you help us to take you out of the box and let you show up however you want to show up in our lives because we want to see change and transformation in our relationships in our life and we want to be alive awake and free we want to be that and we know that's what you came to do for us and we ask this all in christ's name amen we finish every week at exodus we take communion and again we do this uh it's a religious ritual yes but it's not a religious ritual that has no meaning. It's a religious ritual that is meant to give us a picture of Jesus saying, you take me into you, you give me access, you make yourself available for me to be a part of you, I will. That's what his promise is. So when we take communion, take this bread and this juice and, and ingest it into your being, it's, it's a symbol for you and a picture for you of I'm willing to take Jesus into me and I'm willing to let him Expand my vision, help me see things I haven't seen, and turn wishful thinking into hopeful thinking. All right? Here's how we do it at Exodus. The band will uh, lead us in a couple more songs. There'll be people at each of the aisles, and they'll be here to offer you bread. We tear off a piece. That's how we do it. Just tear off a piece yourself. They'll offer you the cup and just dip it in yourself. We don't drink out of the cup. No real big reason for that other than just how we do it. Dip in the cup. Most people eat it right away. Some people take it back to their seat. There's no right or wrong way to do that. All right? Um, everybody's welcome who is willing to say, I want to give Jesus full access to my life. If there's some issue, area in your life where you're not willing to give Jesus access to for your own well-being, uh, don't take. Nobody's going to notice or single you out or anything, but just be honest with your own heart. Uh, perfection isn't the standard openness to the life of Jesus is. All right. Same time in the side room, underneath the backboard over there, there will be people there to pray. If any of you want someone to pray for you, it could be about anything. It could be about what we talked about this morning, or it could be about just something you want to see Jesus do in your life. All right? So that's for you to go to before or after you take as well. All right? Jesus, we're grateful that you gave yourself, and uh, you gave yourself, and you became obedient to death, is what Scripture says, so we can be the kind of people who now live a new kind of life. And change is a reality for us. Your power is a reality for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. We love who you are, Jesus. Um, we love who you are. Thank you. And we ask this all in your name. Amen.